0: I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reimagining Liberty, a podcast exploring the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Few terms in our contemporary political scene provoke stronger reactions than critical race theory. If you listen to much of the right, CRT is a Marxist plot to literally destroy America by teaching children to hate the country its founding principles and even themselves. The resulting moral panic has led to anti-CRT legislation and acted as a precursor to the growing anti-trans and anti-gay backlash among reactionary conservatives. But what is critical race theory? Because few of those people with strong opinions seem to have much of an idea. Today I'm talking with Sam Hodley-Brill, a PhD student in philosophy and a fellow at the African American Policy Forum. Sam has written extensively about critical race theory, the movement against it on the right, and the way concerns are being manipulated by dishonest activists like Christopher Rufo to roll back the achievements of social liberalism. Before we get to the, the current moral panic about critical race theory— Let's start by clearing up for people just what it is, and I think just as importantly, what it isn't. Because like Marxism and postmodernism, a lot of right-wingers are against it without, it often seems, having much of a sense of what it actually is. So to the extent that we can briefly summarize an entire academic sub-discipline, what is critical race theory?
1: So the term critical race theory was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. She's a law professor um, and executive director of the African American Policy Forum, which I currently work at. And when she coined the term uh, critical race theory or CRT, as it's often referred to, that referred to a very niche at the time intellectual movement in the legal academy in law schools um, and in works in law journals. But it has since become influential in many other disciplines outside of law, uh, disciplines in the humanities and social sciences like philosophy, education, um, and sociology, and so on. So for a brief definition, I would say that critical race theory is a practice of examining the role of race and racism in society, the social construction of race and institutionalized racism, and how race intersects with identity, systems, and policies. Now, that seems like a very, you know, concise definition. Ironically, that definition actually comes from a proposed bill written by a Republican in Minnesota um, to actually ban public schools from having any instruction required that related to critical race theory Um On that definition. So that proposal would have banned schools from requiring any instruction that examines the role of race and racism in society, the social construction of race, institutionalized racism, or how race intersects with identity systems and policies. Now, usually, the people who are opposed to critical race theory aren't so accurate when defining it. So that is a bit of an outlier in terms of the Uh, right-wing legislation proposed to ban critical race theory. The people who oppose CRT will usually define it by demonizing it, as you said, a lot like the right-wing proposed definitions of postmodernism and uh, caricatures of Marxism. And CRT, the preferred way of demonizing it, has typically been to connect it to Marxism. So James Lindsay is one of the most prominent Influencers in right-wing misinformation, disinformation about what critical race theory is in the moral panic. And he wrote an entire book called Race Marxism that was supposed to reveal the hidden truth about critical race theory. Uh, Christopher Rufo is perhaps the most publicly prominent um influencer in the CRT Moral Panic. And he has said many times that he takes most of his understanding of critical race theory from James Lindsay. Um, They both like to refer to it as either race based Marxism or race Marxism. And in some cases, they refer to it as state sanctioned racism. They argue that critical race theory sees all white people as oppressors and all people of color as victims, and that critical race theory thinks. White people should feel guilty or ashamed for being white. Um, And that kind of language has been very prominent in the bills going around red states that are uh, supposed to ban critical race theory. They say that teachers cannot promote any material that says that any student should feel ashamed or uh, any kind of psychological distress um, on account of their race. And that language actually comes originally from. Donald Trump's executive order in September 2020, which was aimed at banning racial diversity training and federal government trainings, um, and it targeted critical race theory by name. Of course, critical race theory does not actually say that all white people are oppressors, that white children should feel guilty for their race. Um, Ironically, it's pretty much the exact opposite. It's much more focused on institutions and the role that institutions and policies and social systems and structures have in upholding racism and very much not uh, excessively concerned with the psychological life of the individual racist.
0: It seems like a distinction worth taking a moment to dig into because I think it is central to a lot of both the moral panic and the... The dishonesty that you see in the way that the right talks about this, but also a lot of the, the confusion that that people who maybe aren't, you know, aren't coming to it from a dishonest place, but are genuinely just confused about this. And that's the nature of racism within this context. So, for example, take like systemic racism is is something that gets talked about and is. As it's used by CRT scholars and people in adjacent fields, um, it seems to be fairly straightforward. But it does get at that difference between saying you specific person are a racist, whether knowingly or unknowingly, um, or all whites are racists, and institutions can be Racist. Those mean different things. So, what what is the difference in, I guess, the application of the term racism in those two contexts?
1: Yeah. So, this is, you know, of course, uh, a matter of debate in anti-racist scholarship, and um, not all critical race theorists agree, um, and not all, you know, anti-racist scholars agree about how to define racism. Um, how to Define Institutionalized Racism, Systemic Racism is one um, that started out with a pretty specific meaning um, proposed, I believe, by the sociologist Joe Feagan, um, but has come to be used much more broadly, much like the term critical race theory itself, much like uh, terms like intersectionality. These uh, ideas can often take on a sort of life of their own when they are divorced from the academic context in which they were originally proposed. In terms of what I think, as a, you know, critical philosopher of race, I would characterize myself. um, I've studied mostly uh, the work of Charles Mills, who is a professor of mine, um, very unfortunately passed away a little over a year ago now. But I think that his work is severely underappreciated, and has very rich intellectual contributions to a lot of these kinds of debates. So pulling a passage from him here, this is from his book, Black Rights, White Wrongs. And he writes that racism has been given various competing definitions and attributed competing areas of application. I would distinguish between racism in the ideational sense, a complex of ideas, beliefs, values, and racism in the socio-institutional sense, institutions, practices, social systems. For the first sense, the ideational sense, I would favor this definition. Racism is the belief that humanity can be divided into discrete races, and these races are hierarchically arranged, with some races superior to others. The second sense, the socio institutional sense, would then refer to institutions, practices, and social systems that illicitly privilege some races at the expense of others, where racial membership, directly or indirectly, Explains this privileging. So I think that gets at the core issue pretty well. And it helps us understand what is the key value of drawing a conceptual distinction between the racism uh, that exists on an interpersonal level or even intrapersonal, right? Just some individual racists' beliefs about racial superiority and inferiority, and also the kinds of practices that can perpetuate racial inequality. Even if there aren't necessarily any individual racists who are participating in them, for instance uh some policy like stop and frisk or you know there are there are countless police examples um to go on or other things in terms of redlining and housing discrimination there the the person who is uh discriminating against someone um might not actually believe that some that you know races are inferior or superior but the way that the practices are carried out can end up having the same effects as if uh those people did have those beliefs
0: i can imagine some of my friends on the right listening to this right now though and saying are you then saying that racism in this systemic institutional sense is always present whenever there are racially disparate outcomes and if so um does that basically mean that we have to assume that races which often map onto ethnic groups or cultural groups for you know a variety of reasons are in their behaviors preferences tastes and so on, all identical, right? So like that, if, if it turns out that a certain group that happens to share a skin color, but also a culture has different outcomes than a different group with a skin color and a culture, um, that is evidence of racism as opposed to just any two groups are going to have differences between them that they're then going to manifest in outcomes. However we manage, however we measure those.
1: Yeah. So great question. I actually think this is a good objection to certain brands of anti-racism. For instance, as far as I can tell, um, the anti-racism of a scholar like Ibram Kendi, um, I read his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist in the Summer of 2020, and I found it severely um, disappointing in terms of its relative status in the that cultural moment. You know, it was atop the New York Times bestsellers list. People were including it on all sorts of anti-racist reading lists. Um, and as far as I can tell, Kendi actually does believe that any racial disparity is always and only explained by racism. It's actually a bit more accurate to put it as though racism just is the disparities between races and that you know, any explanation must pretty much be monocausal and cannot account for any other influences. Now, I think that's wrong. Um, I did a talk, I gave a talk at the American Philosophical Association meeting in January 2021, where I delivered a critique of Robin DiAngelo and Ibram Kendi and uh, didn't have much time to go into detail. But the main objection that I gave to Kendi's theory was exactly the sort of one you're opposing, where, for instance, if we look at the undergraduate population of Ivy League schools uh, and see how many students are Jewish, then we compare that to the number of Americans overall who are Jewish. number of Americans overall is something around 2%. The number of undergraduates at Ivy Leagues is something like 14%. And so, According to Kendi's theory, which also goes into detail about what he calls ethnic racism, where he makes exactly the point you were sort of challenging me with, which is he argues that actually any kind of disparity between racialized ethnic groups, which Jews are probably the paramount example of a racialized ethnic group, that those disparities are explained by racism, um, that any policy that produces such disparities is a racist policy. And that to me sounds sort of akin to kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that actually led to implementing uh, quotas on how many Jewish students could enroll at Ivy League universities um, earlier in the 20th century. So I think that there's nothing in critical race theory that commits you to that position. And Ibram Kendi himself has said that while he's inspired by critical race theorists, He doesn't consider himself to be one.
0: I think that just is a – that's an important point to make because it's frustrating how many people are – they're like, I don't like critical race theory, and the only thing I've read is Kindy. Um, Exactly, exactly. So on the flip side of it then – or not necessarily the flip side, but um, just from the other direction, the – one of the other criticisms that gets leveled against – CRT, either as it actually exists or as it exists in kind of the fever dreams of Glenn Beck and so on, is that it is fundamentally a form of anti-white racism. Mm-hmm. That this is mm-hmm. this is a whatever value these theories have or whatever their arguments, they're ultimately motivated by a hatred of white people or whiteness or a wanting to tear down the status of whites or whatever. And I mean just Yesterday, Tulsi Gabbard,
1: who mm-hmm.
0: – yep. it's hard to pull out a coherent ideology from what seems to be just like a grab bag of like nonsense and conspiracy thinking on her part. But Tulsi Gabbard listed anti-white racism that she said was endemic in the mainstream Democratic Party as a reason that she was leaving that party. Um, which is a little bit perplexing because I don't I don't see a lot of anti white racism from Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> but does that does what is the role of anti white racism in all of this?
1: Yeah. So anti white racism is frequently invoked um, when it comes to any kind of white backlash. What uh, Martin Luther King Jr. called a white backlash, and Black intellectuals from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King and beyond um, have pointed out this phenomenon in American politics that basically whenever there is substantive progress made for black Americans, um, especially, but also for people of color generally, whenever some progress is made, it is immediately responded to with an assertion of uh, white supremacy, right? And this, I'm not, when I say white backlash, I don't mean that every white person responds negatively. Of course, we know that most white people uh, would declare themselves not racist. Uh, Maybe not most would say that they're anti-racist, although I think probably most would say that they're anti-racist, but that term has become kind of toxic to some because of things like the CRT moral panic. But we know that most white people in the U.S. do not think of themselves as racists anymore. But when the status quo of white people being superior to black people in the social and political realms is challenged, that is fought with, uh, again, what King called a white backlash. And so one of the most common ways that the fight begins is by asserting that progress for black people is necessarily oppression of white people, that anti-racism giving black people rights must be taking away white people's rights. And you see this. Uh, it's interesting how the politics of the Republican Party have shifted because when David Duke ran and won uh, a seat in, the, I believe, the state Senate of Louisiana, It was the state government of Louisiana in 1991. It was 1989 or 1991. He ran several times, but uh, he ran as a Republican and he was elected as a Republican. And President George Bush, uh, George H.W. Bush, got involved um, and was like, the Republican Party does not support this. Um, and the fundamental talking points of David Duke, who at that time had abandoned the Klan imagery, uh, you know, he he claimed to have denounced the Ku Klux Klan and he started his N.A.A.W.P., the National Association for Advancement of White People. But all of his rhetoric and talking points were about how affirmative action is racism toward white people, how um, any kind of substantive program to give positive benefits to black people um was anti-white fundamentally in nature and the republican party then saw this as dangerous and that it had to be denounced and since the republican party has pretty much wholeheartedly endorsed this that you know race that that affirmative action that you know um say, if you have two equally qualified candidates for a job or a spot at a university, and one is white, the other is black, that you can take that into account and give this token form of benefit to the black person in that case. Well, that's fundamentally anti-white. Critical race theory, uh, many critical race theories do support affirmative action. Not all do, interestingly, especially because now the only kind of affirmative action that exists is that which uses diversity as its rationale. Schools are not allowed to implement an affirmative action plan with the reparations as rationale. The only uh, rationale that's accepted by the Supreme Court is diversity. And who knows how long it'll last because I think affirmative action is on the docket um, in October. But it's been very interesting to see the anti-CRT moral panic with especially people like Christopher Rufo taking up the exact talking points of people who just, you know, 30 years ago were seen as a threat to the image of the Republican Party and now the talking points are fundamentally indistinguishable.
0: Let's turn to that moral panic then, away from away from defining our terms and our disciplines to the the contemporary scene. CRT's been around for decades as a a somewhat obscure field of of legal theory, certainly obscure by the standards of most most Americans were not aware of it. Um, and you don't get it. I went to law school and I don't remember being explicitly taught CRT stuff. And I took I took a legal theory course. But so what's happening now? Like why now is this The panic and and i guess one way to frame the question is there are always there have always been moral panics on the right that are typically we just don't like that the social liberals are pushing a socially liberalizing agenda of acceptance for groups that we think should be less privileged or should be excluded or should be discriminated against um or just you know are run counter to socially conservative values, and there's always something that they point to. So there was Sharia law was it for mm-hmm. for a while, and that just basically meant anything that the the people who give acceptance speeches at the Academy Awards would support was basically Sharia law, um, or it was postmodernism for a while or it was marxism for a while so is crt is the crt panic just the latest iteration of of that of grabbing a term that sounds scary to middle americans um and and saying all the stuff that we've always been against happens to be this thing um or is there something deeper particularly about you know cuz sharia law had a racial element because it was it was fear of muslims but it wasn't explicitly about race neither was postmodernism neither was marxism but this one is so is there something else going on right now that makes it that racializes things
1: that's a good question i think that there are two things going on one of them is the white backlash dynamic that i just referred to a, a bit ago And the other is the need for um, moral panics that do not necessarily need to be racialized, but need to be oriented around some sense of what it is to be an American, uh, around American identity. And this is important for uh, the Republican Party because for a long time now, the Republican Party has been a very nationalist party. So the Sharia law thing worked especially well, I think, in the aftermath of 9-11. You see uh, Islam as a threat to American identity because you can point to the visceral image of uh, you know, the, the Twin Towers being assaulted by aircraft and the people who died and all of the sweeping policies that were enacted afterwards right? So there needs to be some kind of binding myth uh, that brings people together that they can point to in the event that there are serious questions asked about, well, what does the Republican Party actually even stand for, right? Because we know that the material economic policies that the Republican Party stands for are overwhelmingly unpopular. Uh, People are not very happy about more tax cuts for the rich and more taxes that they themselves have to pay. These things are not going to win elections. So Republicans have to run on another platform. And uh, they often do using bigoted social rhetoric that often falls under the label of culture wars, which I'm not I I didn't see a problem with it in the past but the more I've come to think about that frame culture wars the more I've come to think that it's actually counterproductive um and just sort of seeds ground to the right but that's uh much that's another conversation entirely um but these sorts of things I mean just before Fox News picked up critical race theory as the new moral panic they were talking about Dr Seuss's books being banned um banned as in they were out of print but, you know, the the, the truth doesn't matter in, in a moral panic. It's about taking, you know, some isolated event, ramping it up as portraying it as a threat to civilization and self-identity and everything that we've always cared about, our way of life. And that's what it did with critical race theory. Just before uh, critical race theory, I can't remember whether it was before or after the Dr. Seuss panic. They were talking about uh, Mr. Potato Head's gender being changed. So often these things are thrown at the wall. You know, they throw whatever it is at the wall. They see what sticks. Critical race theory stuck. And I think that the main reason it stuck is going back to the other phenomenon, the white backlash. So this began really in 2020. Um with the the first piece of official policy was Donald Trump's executive order targeting critical race theory by name. He called it a Marxist doctrine. Uh, he called it uh, toxic that it was poisoning the minds of American children. And why September 2020? Well, because after George Floyd was murdered by the police in May 2020, we witnessed the most massive and most racially diverse protests for racial justice in American history. And for the first time, it seemed like it wasn't just a matter of mostly black people fighting for for their rights, but for a truly multiracial coalition that was going to strive towards a multiracial democracy. And in the 60s, those protests then were more diverse than the previous wave of protests that swept the nation. But nothing like the ones that we saw in 2020. And so this white backlash has to, uh, you know, there ha- there has to be one, the pendulum swings one way, and it always swings back the other way. And I think you can really see that backlash start to take root um, in, for instance, Tucker Carlson's coverage of the Black Lives Matter protests that summer, he started to break records of how many sets of eyeballs were glued to him as he demonized black people, uh, fighting for their rights and against police brutality. He was saying that they were coming for you. Um, and we know Fox's broadcast, I think their, their viewership is something like 96% white. Um, so, you know, the, the context is very implicit throughout all that. And then, uh, I think the first big moment of self-assertion of the white backlash, um, on a large scale was January 6th, 2021. Um, there was research by the political scientist Robert Pape, uh, who found that what you what all of these insurrectionists had in common wasn't that they all came from red states or anything uh like that. they but what was true was that they all came from places where non-white populations were growing fastest. So all of there are many other things going on at the same time. Of course, you can't reduce it to any one cause. But I think that the unification of the white backlash and um, your typical republican pushed fox News you know right wing media pushed moral panic converged and found very fertile ground in twenty twenty one especially
0: I wonder too if there's just i think one of the things that we often forget is how the the height of Jim Crow and the civil rights movement. And the really ugly open racism throughout, particularly the American South, was not that long ago. Was you know, like Martin Luther King's his I have a dream speech was 59 years ago, I think. So there are there are people alive today um who were teenagers at a time when like really virulent open racism was the norm. In their communities, and people don't change that rapidly. You know, I mean, I think the same thing goes on with um, with acceptance of gays and lesbians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like I was a teenager in the '90s, and it's shocking looking back at how homophobic, like, mass media was when I was in high school. Um, and that you mentioned Tucker Carlson. The average age of a Tucker Carlson viewer or of a Fox News viewer is. Well, north of sixty, I believe, um and so how much of this is just people who grew up in a time when it was much more acceptable to be racist when you those those hierarchies of races right those the the sense of hierarchies of races was much more ingrained, and so they look around and they see protests, even if they 're mostly peaceful you can find the examples of the violence, and then Tucker can highlight those. Mm-hmm. And they just view it as these people who I am convinced are somewhat violent by nature anyway, and are you know used to be kind of in their place, are now rising up in this violent way, and that's terrifying to me um, and it does seem like then the the Republican party and trump and Chris Rufo and the whole kind of grifting class have just latched on to those what I think are in we, the the racism defined two ways that we talked about earlier. This is like the the actual racism, racism of like beliefs and assessments of people as individuals and as members of categories. Um, and so it is I, like it shouldn't shock us, but it is shocking just how kind of openly racist a lot of the rhetoric is yeah
1: and uh i think it's uh there's another quote from martin luther king that um i like to illustrate critical race theory when people ask me more about the details of critical race theory like well they'll say you know well i get that it's examining you know the relationship between race and law and power in american society but like what do critical race theorists actually believe um, and when I do get into those conversations, I like to, um, throw at them quotes from Martin Luther King that they have likely never heard of, um, because so many Americans, uh, just have this extraordinarily impoverished conception of who Martin Luther King was and what he believed about racism in the U S and how to fight it. They think that, you know, he advocated for colorblindness in the sense of, uh, having completely race neutral policies um, and that that would somehow but there's
0: that one line. It's the only line anyone knows from anything you ever said.
1: Exactly. And even that line, when you examine it just a little more closely, doesn't support what they usually think uh, what they usually take it to support. Because what he says is that he has a dream that one day um, his children, you know, will be able to hold hands with white children um and that people will be judged not for the color of their skin but for the content of their character and as far as i can tell no critical race theorists disagrees with him that that is a worthy goal right we all want to live in a world except for the the, you know virulent racists of the world we all want to live in a world where racism is no longer an issue but you cannot extract from that quote the idea that that the means to such an end is to pretend that you know race has no relevance and should not be accounted for when it comes to society i mean there are quotes where he quite explicitly says that you know Uh, America has done something special against black people for so long. And so to bring them back up, they need to do something special for them. That's quite explicitly, you know, uh, advocating for race conscious reparations policies. But um, the quote that I was thinking of specifically in terms of uh, it, I was reminded of it by what you were just saying about, we have to remember, this wasn't that long ago, that, you know, the the dogs were sicked on racial justice, civil rights protesters, that people were jailed for these things, that John Lewis's head was beat in for peacefully protesting by police officers in the South. All of these things were not that long ago. And one of the key insights of critical race theory is that racism is not an aberration in America. Racism happens all the time. And this is something that's explicitly been banned in uh, Texas and in Florida. There's legislation that uh, prohibits teachers from describing racism and slavery as uh, anything other than aberrations from or deviations from the core founding principles of America. Um, And that ideology is something that they want their children to learn that actually, yeah, no, America has always been the land of the free, home of the brave, and uh, with liberty and justice for all. When, of course, anyone who has pretty much any understanding of American history as it relates to the you know ideas about race knows that for quite a long time, white supremacy was enshrined explicitly into law. But anyways, the King quote, is, and this is something you could read, you know, it sounds exactly like something you would read from a critical race theorist today, is that for the good of America, it is necessary to refute the idea that the dominant ideology in our country, even today, is freedom and equality, while racism is just an occasional departure from the norm on the part of a few bigoted extremists. And the opposite of that is pretty much exactly what Republicans are fighting to put into the head of Young children who are going to to school in the coming generation.
0: Let's talk a bit about what it is that they're objecting to being taught, because we are seeing these anti CRT bills being passed. Um, they're uh, the the real focal point of a lot of their moral panic is the schools, and you know the worst outbursts always show up at the school board meetings that get filmed and, and shared, um, and we've talked about what CRT is, but a lot of what they're objecting to being taught is not actually like the, the weird little sub of critical race theory. And, and I want to mention something that you, I think you said on Twitter a while back um, and I'm going to encourage, I'll put a link in the show notes but I'm encourage listeners to follow you on Twitter because I think you're, you use the medium well um, and well, thank you. <laughs> you, a, a lot of us would crack that, you know, that the, the the Republicans are upset that CRT is being taught in our elementary schools, but no elementary school te- is teaching Kimberly Crenshaw. And I have made that remark in the past, and you've,
1: and so pushed, back, yeah.
0: you've pushed back on that um, in a way that really struck stuck with me, saying that, that to say that, to make that argument, seeds ground, because that's not what this is really about, and that's not what the don't teach this stuff in the schools case made by the right is about. So can you – unpack that a little bit
1: sure there are a few reasons that i think that this is counterproductive although i have sympathy for people who say it i was one of these people myself uh at the very beginning of this whole moral panic before i think i even really registered it as a moral panic i thought what was going on was that people had legitimate issues with the ideas uh that were properly known as critical race theory and that they wanted to have a kind of public debate about critical race theory, but it has come to my attention, and hopefully everyone else's attention. Um, people, uh, at least anyone who th- thinks of themselves as, you know, moderately well informed on this issue, that these people are not interested. the The anti CRT crowd, the people pushing the moral panic, are not interested in having a debate about. The pros and cons of the scholarship of critical race theory uh one key tweet or or uh pair of tweets in helping me realize this comes from christopher uh, Rufo himself he often he has this habit of sort of tweeting as though he's a kind of cartoon villain announcing his evil plans to the public so in march twenty twenty one Rufo wrote, We have successfully frozen their brand, Critical Race Theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think Critical Race Theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. So this is a very shameless announcement, almost proud announcement of what the strategy is for uh, the sort of right wing influencers uh, like Chris Rufo and James Lindsay is, I think, his his chief sort of it's almost it's. It's almost uh, wrong to call him a sidekick because, in many ways, James is like the the master behind the behind the um, you know the curtain who is who is pulling certain strings because of how much Chris Rufo has learned from James Lindsay. But it's clear it's about branding. So when anyone who has an issue with critical race theory says that you know we don't want critical race theory taught in our schools. If you respond to them by saying critical race theory is not actually being taught in our schools, right? There are a couple of problems with that response. First of all, what they mean by critical race theory is not is likely not the same thing as what you mean by critical race theory. Because when you say that critical race theory is not being taught in schools, that's only true if you have in mind the very narrow conceptual conception of what critical race theory is. It's this academic construct. It doesn't influence K through 12 curricula, et cetera, et cetera. And what they mean is obviously not that. Um, So one, it creates an issue of talking past one another. Two, also it helps, uh, it just feeds the right wing narrative that, uh, you know, the left liberals, the Democratic Party, whatever, however they characterize us, that we are out of touch elites, who uh, don't care about the concerns of average, ordinary, everyday working uh, Americans, right? Because if we say, guys, critical race theory is not actually taught in schools, we sound like we're self-congratulatory because we know this thing about an academic elite concept that other people don't know about. Uh, so those are a few of the reasons. Another one is just saying... If you respond to someone who says, we don't want critical race theory in schools by saying, well, don't freak out. It's not in schools. That implies critical race theory is bad and it makes sense for you to not want it in schools. Right. Because if you said if somebody said they're teaching algebra in schools and we said, no, they're not teaching algebra in schools. Why are you freaking out? Obviously, you can see. That that's strange, because the 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 appropriate response is what's wrong with teaching algebra in schools? Don't you want your kids to know algebra? Don't you want students who can do advanced mathematics? Similarly, we should want critical race theory in schools insofar as the core ideas are packaged in ways that can be understood by uh students at whatever age or grade level that they're being taught that. You know, critical race theory, the core insights are just that, look, passing the Civil Rights Acts and the, the landmark legislation, things like the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, these were important steps in the fight for racial justice. But we cannot say that because our laws are now color colorblind or race neutral on paper, that that has eliminated systemic racism or institutionalized racism in the U.S., Right. There is a lot more that we have to look at. And so responding, critical race theory is not being taught for many reasons, I find is not the right response.
0: It's interesting and discouraging just how much of this is you read the the tweets from Rufo, um, is like explicitly a con upon the people that they are riling up, that they are they are open about lying to their audience in order to get them upset and, and then to motivate them in directions that Rufo and his compatriots want. And you have, and I'll I'll link to it, a long article you wrote going through just how much Chris Rufo dissembles or misrepresents or outright lies in in the stuff that he's doing, and he's open about it. And it reminds me of um that there's there seems like there's been a general shift on the right in being more open about approaching politics in this direction and so yes, for example for sure. um Amari in his famous against david frenchism article in first things i think it was back in may of 2019 which was the that was the essay about drag queen story hour um for for listeners who aren't familiar with it He says – I pulled it up. He says – and this sounds very much like what you just were describing Rufo saying. He says, quote, Progressives understand that culture war means discrediting their opponents and weakening or destroying their institutions. Conservatives should approach the culture war with a similar realism. Civility and decency are secondary values. That this is – it's a very Carl Schmitt Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. view of politics as simply – War and rewarding our friends and punishing our enemies. um, This is just kind of out in the open, and and that it's out in the open that this is what the right is doing is one thing. But what's really distressing about this is how many people don't seem to recognize that that's what's happening and just kind of take it face value. People like James Lindsay, you know, I know a lot of very smart people in my libertarian circles who were reading Lindsay's books as a way to understand this stuff and it was like understand critical theory in general which was inc- very discouraging um because he was obviously just a kind of deranged grifter um but accepting chris rufo um accepting sarab amari and it feels like those people ought to if nothing else they ought to be angry that they're being used so transparently yeah
1: yeah, I I mean I totally agree and this is something I've found come up again and again as I've paid attention to what Rufo is doing and how explicit he is. I get this this you know this persistent sense that Rufo just has absolutely no respect for the intelligence of his audience. Um that he, you know, he will openly lie to them. Uh, but it's okay as long as he tells them that he's going to be lying to them, or something to that effect and I think that I've come to think about it a little bit differently um I see it as something that I think is key to um fascist politics, which is this sense of willingful particip- like this willingness to participate in lies to defame the enemy because it brings you together and reaffirms your your status as a member of the in-group and one of the good people um, because anything as you said with Carl Schmitt's friend-enemy distinction anything is justified to defeat the enemy right and it's not about any commitment to you know abstract principles or respect for civil debate or anything like that Uh, Rufo has himself has come out As saying, you know, that he doesn't believe in anything like academic freedom, that it's a myth that if, you know, in Florida, if the legislature has the votes to ban academics from studying racial inequality, then it's not a violation of academic freedom to pass a law that would prevent professors from doing that because the universities are funded by taxpayer dollars and uh, the taxpayers through their representatives have every right to abolish the study of those sorts of things if they want to i think one of the most um one of the most illuminating uh instances of rufo coming out into the open and explaining just how much he doesn't care about telling the truth when it comes to his enemies comes when he uh did a thread about the language he recommends people use when talking about drag queens so relevant to the saraba mari piece um this this is especially worrying to me because as you as you said earlier you know um in your time in the 90s right mainstream american culture was vastly more homophobic Um, i've witnessed a pretty massive change over the course of my lifetime in how tolerant people are of lgbtq identities um and something i experienced a bit more firsthand because i have two moms um they're lesbian and i remember in middle school when california you know one of the most progressive states on this thing in 2008 passed proposition 8 which made it illegal for gay couples to be married and i remember having people i was friends with at school i brought it up to them and i was like isn't this messed up and you know people that i was close friends with saying actually i'm pretty sure that you know being gay is a sin, like your moms might be going to hell, like this sort of stuff. And it was a lot more common back then. And I thought uh, just up until, you know, pretty much this past year that we had made progress that I naively saw as pretty set in stone. Um, But the critical race theory panic paved the way for the grooming panic and all of this issues. All of these issues about forbidden material uh, in schools, explicit material in schools, very much set the stage. The CRT panic set the stage for the issue to shift to teaching about LGBTQ issues in schools and, um, you know, the presence of any transgender uh, persons whatsoever is seen as a threat to you know children's innocence that's another thing that it connects the two issues is there's this overwhelming concern for the innocence of uh white children in the crt case and what is seen as straight by default children uh in the grooming case uh and cisgender children in the grooming case what rufo said about um the language in Uh, June of this year. He wrote, conservatives should start using the phrase trans stripper in lieu of drag queen. It has a more lurid set of connotations and shifts the debate to sexualization. Drag queens in schools invites a debate. Trans strippers in schools anchors an unstoppable argument. Then he says, let the left try to nitpick the phrase we can say that trans is a stand-in for transvestite which is a term that literally means cross-dresser someone who dresses the opposite as their gender or sex and he says we can show videos that are undeniably strip shows the he says the blackface for women argument is the wrong approach because it adopts the frame of the left which traps conservatives in their identity games which i thought was very amusing that he's arguing that people shouldn't characterized drag queens as doing blackface for women because they shouldn't argue that blackface is bad (laughs) and then he says that uh saying it's blackface for women misses the main problem which is the grotesque sexualization of children right back to the innocence issue and then he says trans strippers in schools is a powerful frame to this debate And if the left chooses to engage in language games on that phrase, they will find themselves defending concepts and words that are deeply disturbing to most people. Let them get stuck in the linguistic mud. Uh, Andrew Sullivan, who is usually uh, team anti-woke, took issue with what Rufo said here. And he said, Chris Rufo says that uh, British parents who take their kids to pantomimes, where a drag queen is always one of the stars, are taking their kids to see trans strippers. The post-truth right has truly arrived. And Rufo's response is, we shouldn't use euphemisms. This is a male-to-female transvestite strip show with a ch- with children in attendance, right? Taking one of those videos where children are present at a drag queen um, event that involves uh, some stripping Um, And that one event serves to solidify his entire linguistic manipulation. And again, as you said, it's very concerning that people just don't seem to care. And the only way I can explain it now is that they actually enjoy participating in this kind of defamation of their opponents.
0: So then to to close out our conversation, what can we as people who are very much worried about this direction that things are taking? what can we do about it, particularly given you know, several episodes ago on the show I had on Matt McManus to talk about the postmodern right and the way that the, the right, which is very much what you were just describing, has kind of embraced this postmodern approach to truth that it's all narrative. We can manipulate the narrative. There's no point in trying to tie it to underlying principles or really much of anything. Consistency doesn't matter in this this view and so on. What do we do about that? Because it seems like arguing against it just traps us in either kind of normalizing some of some of these views by like taking them seriously in the same way that you don't necessarily like debate the young earth creationists um, or it it enables them to play the sorts of games that Rufo that you just described Rufo articulating like how do we push back on something that is both so kind of corrosive and immoral from a social standpoint but also just so detached from basic principles of of like argumentation and what we took to be healthy political discourse
1: yeah so a lot of um people who are more involved than i am i mean i consider myself, uh, I would deeply identify with the label, uh, anti-fascist, but I have not participated in Antifa protests myself. Um, but I do, I have spoken with people who are more involved, um, in that sort of movement, um, countering fascistic political movements, um, and things like right-wing militias and all those, uh, groups And they often say that, you know, you cannot out-debate fascism. You can only smash fascism. Now, some people hear that and they think, okay, we should go um, murder Nazis and those sorts of things. Now, that's not what I'm saying. I don't think uh, that, at least now, I mean, I think, for instance, if we were in another situation and there was a world war and there was – Nazi Germany, again, do I think that we should not intervene? That's not what I'm saying. I think that there is a time and place for warfare, and it's not to start wars, but to respond and to intervene when that's required for saving the lives of innocent people. But in terms of domestic issues, um, I do think it's true that you can't out-debate a fascist. Um, I think that depending on the context it could be worthwhile to debate specific fascists. Uh, for instance, I would be confident in my ability to debate someone like Chris Rufo, and I have invited him to do so multiple times, and he has uh, blocked me on Twitter. And if anybody shares my article going into detail about how often he lies in his reporting on so-called critical race theory in schools, he will block you too uh, if you put it in his mentions. It's very important to him to preserve the epistemic bubble um, the echo chamber that he has, but I think that one of the ways in which ordinary people can get bogged down is to hyper focus on debunkings of specific claims. Um, if you focus always on debunking specific claims you'll never you'll never finish because there will always be more claims that you have to debunk. And every time you debunk one claim about, say, a right wing media story uh, that has been proven to be based on false premises or bad reporting or whatever, uh, there'll always be another one that someone can refer to. That will never change their mind. And it's very tempting to get caught up in the game of just, you know, refuting all these individual cases. What I think is much more powerful is to construct a construct to to be able to tell a story about what the right is doing to be able to weave to, to be able to connect the dots for people on things that they might not have thought about themselves to be able to connect you know tax breaks for the uber rich with the kinds of policies that are dominating republican platforms so that the debate isn't focused on how unpopular their economic proposals are right they have to keep us fighting about critical race theory in schools about grooming in schools so that the uh topic of debate isn't you know the fact that the right is absolutely opposed to improving health care for ordinary working class americans that they're actually opposed to the institution of public education itself part of the uh you know some of the I would argue probably the primary long-term goal of both of the uh, critical race theory in schools, moral panics, and grooming in schools, moral panics, those are both about privatizing public education, which itself is not a popular uh, policy for most Americans. Most Americans do want it to be the case that they can send their children to a school where they can get a quality education and not have to pay... Any money on top of the taxes that they're already paying. But because it's not popular to just say that we want to privatize public education, they have to, as Rufo put it himself, uh, they have to operate from a premise of universal public school distrust to get to universal school choice. So I think what we have to be able to do is to point out to people how they are being deceived. Because I think for a lot of liberals uh there is a temptation to buy into these moral panics, right They're moral panics for a reason. People are panicking about these things because if they were true as they're being presented, they would be incredibly um worthy of panic, right? If it were true that at schools across the United States, all the white children were being told that they're oppressors and that they should be ashamed of themselves, that'd be a pretty bad thing if it were true that teachers were actually grooming students sexually to be exploited later on, that would be heinous. That would be a crime of massive proportions, right? So the temptation for these people is always going to be there. And the way to debunk the myth is not to constantly refute individual cases, but to be able to tell a story that connects the dots for people as to why they are being manipulated in the ways that they are. I think that is the only way that we will really be able to defeat this on a democratic level. There has to be people reaching out to the people that they're close with in real life. There are going to be a lot of uncomfortable conversations uh, with people. That is one of the main reasons the the CRT issue has taken hold so strongly, I think, is that a lot of uh white people but also people of other races do not want to have uncomfortable conversations with maybe older members of their family uh for fear of not wanting to point out that something that they said is racist or that actually you know um we, we don't use that kind of outdated terminology anymore or any of those things i mean a lot of one-on-one conversations are going to happen but i think a lot of the responsibility resides with people much higher up than ourselves in media institutions. Um, I think there's a huge danger of prioritizing profit over the stability of a democratic republic. Um, And so if there are many more stories that can be pumped out, um, and whatever gets the most clicks, if that is always going to determine what stories are told, then we might be doomed. But I don't think that uh, we're doomed yet. And I think that Um, There's a huge responsibility on the people in the media to be able to connect these dots for people in a way that is digestible and in a way that uh, can get across to people without them having to, you know, read a six volume study. So, yeah, I'm not extraordinarily hopeful, but I, uh, I am not totally in despair either.
0: Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. This show is listener-supported. If you'd like to become a member, gain access to our Discord community, and listen to every new episode two weeks before its public release, look for the link in the show notes or head to reimaginingliberty.com slash subscribe.